Welcome to the New Mama Podcast. I'm Lauren, a new mama to little Logan, and I'm here to share women's stories of pregnancy, birth, and motherhood. Spoiler alert, it's not going to be all sunshine and rainbows. We're talking about the ups and downs of motherhood through raw, vulnerable, no BS conversations, because in reality, you can't have a rainbow without a little rain. This podcast is here to be your friend, the friend I'd wish I'd had in my darkest times to remind me that I was not alone. And it's okay to not be okay. We're in this together and mama, you got this. Hi everyone and welcome to today's episode of the new mama podcast. I'm joined today by Amanda Coneyworth. Amanda is a chartered accountant and registered liquidator, as well as mama to little four-year-old Zara and seven-month-old Ava. She lives in Sydney with her husband, Sean, and while she works with numbers all day, her passion is to inspire other women to achieve their career, wealth, and wellness goals. She has an awesome website called Gorgeous Present, which I highly recommend you check out. Welcome, Amanda. Thanks, Lauren. I'm so excited to be here and thanks for having me. No problem. I'm excited to have you on. How has your morning been so far? Oh, it's been jam-packed. I feel like I've had a whole day in the space of a few hours with <laughs> the two girls waking up early. They jump in our bed and we do all our breakfast and milk routine. And then we had ballet on Zoom for Zara, which is a very lockdown experience and <laughs> something that I would just never have imagined we were doing a few years ago yeah and and now I'm here so um it's yeah it's great to be here and to sit down and have some space (laughs) yeah weekends just aren't the same as what they used to be pre-baby are they no no sleep-ins anymore (laughs) (laughs) um so speaking of your gorgeous daughters how were your pregnancies with Zara and Ava Look, I am very fortunate to have had what my obstetrician would call two textbook pregnancies with no major complications or any concerns whatsoever. But just to keep it real, I do think it's worth mentioning that my very first pregnancy didn't go so right in that I did have a miscarriage. And for someone like me, who's very much Uh, an overachiever and wanting to achieve things on time and without any failure. The ability to get pregnant was relatively easy. I came off my contraceptive injection probably two years before I decided to get pregnant, just so that I could get used to my cycle and start tracking it, which I did using an app and, and a thermometer. So I had a really good understanding of my cycle and the best days were to try for having a baby when we got to that point. Mm -hmm. And so for my first pregnancy, I basically got pregnant straight away. Uh, Nothing, nothing really hard about that, which, which I was very grateful for. And I knew exactly when I'd fallen pregnant and I made all the appointments and we were due to have our dating scan, I think at about the six or seven week mark from memory. And I had been away with work interstate in mining country with a bunch of work colleagues who were male and much younger than me. So I obviously couldn't share anything about being pregnant at that point. And I just remember starting to bleed and it was just before dinner and I thought, oh, this could be normal, right? Um, Some people bleed during their pregnancies early on and it could have been breakthrough breakthrough bleeding I think it's what they call it and so I 
I didn't think too much of it at first, but I went out to dinner and I came back home to where we were staying and it was just getting a little bit heavy for my liking. So I called my mom and she didn't really know what to do. And I was so far away from home. So I called the local emergency room at the hospital and they recommended that I come in and and just see them. They were relatively quiet at the time. So I did spend the night in hospital. The bleeding was quite heavy, mm-hmm. I think. And and I just remember the the nurse there saying that it was a miracle to get pregnant, a miracle to stay pregnant, and a miracle to give birth. And mm-hmm. at that point I knew that they weren't necessarily holding high hopes for my pregnancy to continue. But they were so kind about it and really patient with me and my questions. And I guess the the interesting thing was in the morning when the doctor checked me, my cervix was still closed. So they basically said to me, go, go home, go to your dating scan and, and, you know, the obstetrician appointment and see how things are going. And I did go, I did get checked. Everything seemed okay. And I went to the dating scan the next day and there was a heartbeat. So I was like, wow, this is still working. We've got hope here. Mm. But unfortunately, a week or two later, when I went back to my second appointment, there wasn't a heartbeat. And look, I I hadn't experienced miscarriage before personally. So it was just absolutely traumatic. And that sense of losing something that you, you know, you really started thinking about in your mm. mind as being your future with your baby. But yeah. I also have a friend who had experienced already two miscarriages just beforehand. So I knew that it was something that was, you know, not just unique to myself, but Mm. other than my friend, I hadn't really looked into it. I hadn't really heard about it. And I think it's really important now that I know that it's much more prevalent to Mm. share that story because it's, it's very, very common and, it's very heartbreaking regardless of how long you've carried a baby for, whether it's had a tiny heartbeat and it's a speck on that ultrasound or whether yeah. it's a lot further along in the process, there's still that sense of loss and that sense yeah. of heart- heartbreak. So, yeah, yeah, it just, it just carried with me then moving forward. And I did have the most amazing obstetrician. He was so kind about it. He recommended straight away to go into surgery and get a DNC so that everything was clean and I was able to start trying again as soon as I was ready. And I really credit him for giving me that sense of mm-hmm. surety that everything would be okay and that it's very normal and you just have to really pull through. And it was a bit heartbreaking because I went into surgery the day before my birthday and I was like, this is not a very good birthday. Oh, no. <laughs> No. And to your point around not having known many people that had experienced it before or heard about it, it is quite prevalent. It's a shame that people don't speak about it more. So firstly, I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. But secondly, thank you so much for sharing your story. I just think it's really important for women to know that they're not alone. And especially when they're seeing other people getting pregnant, you know, everyone has that story behind it and you really don't know what they've gone through to get to that point. And how long after miscarrying did you conceive with Zara? Basically the recommendation that the obstetrician gave to me was to wait for your cycle to return so that you knew then when you were ovulating. So I did wait. Yeah. I did wait for one cycle and I got my period back 
relatively quickly. I think it was about six weeks after the surgery. So there was nothing, no long-term impact or complications there. And so once that cycle came back and I was checking my temperature and making sure that I knew when I was ovulating, I then we then tried again. And I think from memory, it may have taken just two two attempts, two, two cycles, and, and then we got pregnant again. And when you're checking your temperature, which I don't know if you've done before Lauren it's um it's quite interesting because when you ovulate your temperature goes up and then once uh the ovulation has taken place the temperature drops back down and then you get your period when you get pregnant it keeps going up and you're seeing this temperature keep rising and rising and it's still not time for your period and it's still too early to take a pregnancy test <laughs> but you know that it's coming so you know, so early, it's quite interesting and, and also equally frustrating because you can't tell anyone and you've got to yeah. wait for that pregnancy test and you try to get the ones that are the earliest detection <laughs> just so that you, can, you can find out more. But yeah, maybe that makes the issue harder to deal with when it doesn't turn out because it's obviously very common to miscarry in that first six weeks. So the mm. earlier you know, the the more chance that you know when something goes wrong. But Fortunately for me, it worked the second time around and the third time. Yeah. It was good. Yeah. And that would have added an extra level of anxiety and stress around the pregnancy because whilst you're delighted to have fallen pregnant, you just have that fear in the back of your mind that, you know, you might experience miscarriage again. So it sounds like you handled that well. Absolutely. Yeah, it was it was one of those things where you just have to remind yourself that not everything is in your control, which is very hard for someone like me. But I knew that there was always going to be more chances and more attempts. So we were very fortunate to Mm. continue on successfully. And that anxiety stayed with me for most of the pregnancy, not only because of the risk of miscarriage, but just uh, knowing that there are other complications that you have to be aware of. And my sister-in-law as well had her second child born with Down syndrome, which hadn't come up under any of her earlier tests. So that was always at the back of our mind. We did make sure that we got our tests done when when we could. And being a little bit older, obviously, there's a, a slight more chance of those sorts of risks. So once we had those tests done, I started to relax a bit more and feel like myself, but it's always lingering at the back of your mind that things can go wrong. So yeah, it's just that that juggle of pregnancy, the excitement, the joy with the real, you know, anxiety around hopefully everything will be okay. And um, but other than that, yeah, very, very easy pregnancies. I feel really guilty saying that when I hear stories like your own on feeling sick all the time. And <laughs> yeah, for me, I was extremely lucky in that sense. And really for me, it was just about doing things that felt right for me. So I continued to exercise and I was relatively relaxed with eating. And I know we've talked about literature and reading things on Google and being concerned about what to eat and what to not drink and and all that sort of thing. And 
one of the things that I really enjoyed and I thought uh, it would be useful to share with your listeners was a book by Emily Oster called Expecting Better. <laughs> I, I found that book extremely useful for someone that was interested in numbers and, and studies like myself because she did go into the detail around all the studies around those different things that you shouldn't do or should do in pregnancy, including yeah. drinking and tests and eating, you know, salads and soft cheeses and whatnot. And, and that really gave me reassurance as well that having a glass of wine was okay. <laughs> yeah, I was exactly the same. I, I remember buying the book and I've actually just recently lent it to a friend who fell pregnant after I gave birth to Logan. And when I bought the book, I remember reading it, I think it was in two days, not even because it's all about why the conventional pregnancy wisdom is wrong and you know some of it obviously you know makes sense and you do want to be careful but I do believe that you go from living your life however you want to live it and having a drink or eating sushi or you know whatever you want to do and all of a sudden there's all these rules around what you can and can't do and what you should and shouldn't do and I feel like that certainly helped me to to be in control of my own pregnancy so as you said you like to be in control. I'm very much the same. And I think that's definitely a great recommendation. So I'll put that in the show notes for the listeners. Yeah, it was, it was probably the most useful book that I read because everything else that I did was all around the birthing process, doing mm. a calm birth course, going to the obstetrician uh, classes around all the pain methods and what to expect when you're giving birth and all those things that seem so useful in the moment when you're pregnant to learn about getting mm. prepared for this, you know, day of giving birth. And <laughs> in hindsight, I think I've wasted my time, but, <laughs> but yeah, it's, um, yeah, I think, I think for me, it was really important to just keep being myself, keep exercising. Mm. I did Bikram yoga after I got past the 20 week mark. I really just did all of the things I felt comfortable doing. And I think that that not only made me feel better while I was pregnant in itself, but also afterwards my recovery was a lot smoother because mm. I didn't need to restart all those things that I had stopped in terms of exercise. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. Whilst I didn't do the exercise part because I was so sick, I did. Well, actually I did try to keep up Pilates because that's something that was really important to me and made me feel like me. And I think that's important, as you say. I mean, I turned 30 when I was 30 weeks pregnant and there was no way I wasn't going to have a glass of champagne to celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So how were the girls' births then when, when the nine months passed and when the time came? Both of my pregnancies went to full term. And with Zara, I got to 40 weeks in one day. And I think by that stage, I just sort of had enough. It was early September, so it wasn't too hot or anything, but I, I was just feeling really fatigued and I went into the obstetrician and my blood pressure was just slightly higher than normal. And he knew from looking at me that it was time. And he was always of the view that once you get to full term, there's no additional risks or benefits from having the baby come out now. Um, in fact, waiting can sometimes create additional risks. So mm. he gave me the option of having an induction. And I thought that really suited me because it meant that for something that 
I would have very little control over once it started. At least I could control the timing. And it just yeah made me feel better that I could just go into the hospital overnight and mm. start the process and everyone knew what was happening. And I did the same thing with Ava. And I think that was probably more for, from a convenience mm-hmm. point of view that I was already five days overdue with her. And when you've got another little person in your life, you have to arrange for them to be put into care with the grandparents. And there's just a little bit more coordination required. But I guess if I start with Zara's birth. So when I was induced, it was a bit of a slow process. They gave me the the gentle induction drugs inside my uterus overnight. And then um, in the morning, my waters were broken and they put me on the oxytocin drip. Mm-hmm. And it was quite painful, obviously, which is normal for labor. So I was prepared for that, <laughs> but it was very slow and it felt like nothing was really progressing Um, in terms of my dilation. So after about six or eight hours, I had just had enough of the pain and I did ask for an epidural and I'd tried the gas for a short amount of time, but that didn't do anything other than make me feel a little bit high and lightheaded. (laughs) So I, I was, I, I was very much of the opinion that I would see what would happen. I wasn't adverse to any pain relief whatsoever. So Um, when it got to that point, I thought, let's just get the epidural. I've got no issues with it whatsoever. I felt enough pain. Let's just get on with it. Mm -hmm. And so (laughs) it took two hours for an anaesthetist to be available. It was a very in-demand time for an anaesthetist. So that was probably the worst two hours of hell that I went through. I feel like anaesthetists are never available when women in labor want them. I know, I know. And then they have a very limited time frame to get that needle into your spine. But um yeah. oh thank God once that happened, I was able to just relax and and rest. And I really needed that. I think it was about 4:30 in the afternoon by that stage. And it wasn't until 11 o'clock that I was ready to to push. Um mm. it, almost got to the point where they said to me that if it took much longer, then they might have to consider other options. But luckily enough, I pulled through and I could feel the change in the contractions and and the pressure down in my back. And Mm. sure enough, I was ready to push. And like any new time mother who hasn't had a pregnancy go to that stage Pushing was a very foreign concept to me, especially when you're mm-hmm. exercising and keeping your pelvic floor and your ab muscles really tight. So I struggled a little bit to begin with um, and I felt the pressure. I had my my obstetrician coming in and out and I felt guilty that I'd kept him awake for so long and I think it was <laughs> 11.30 at that stage. And I <sighs> just remember him saying to me, look, I know you can do this, Amanda. You just have to visualize it. And I'm going to suggest that you use a mirror. So they actually put a mirror there so I could see what was happening. And I actually found Mm. that that was really helpful in learning how to push. And um, as much as people might get grossed out about looking down there (laughs) and seeing it all, I guess once you're in labor, all of that dignity and that, that fear goes out the door and you just really want to get that baby out. So I found that really helpful and Mm. yeah, basically 50 minutes of pushing later, 
she was out and it was all very smooth and there were no complications with her arrival. So I was, yeah, excited um, and very relieved. Yeah, that's great. That seems like, I mean, a relatively straightforward birth and Ava's was quite similar, wasn't it? It was, it was just a lot quicker. So we started the same track, uh, I guess, from a, um, a readiness point of view, my uh, my mucus plug, I just lost the name of it then, uh, my mucus <laughs> plug had come out. That's so, not a great name, is it? <laughs> no, and it was something that intrigued me because it never happened with Zara, but it had it had come out the week before I went in for the induction. I was five days overdue and I was already starting to get contractions. So I was a little bit more ready with her, but... Mm. In terms of the induction and the oxytocin drip, again, it was very painful as labour would be, regardless of how it happens. Um, so I think I lasted for about four hours without any pain relief. And then mm. I knew that there was an anaesthetist available much, much sooner <laughs> this time. So I made the call, yeah. he came in and I think because I was a lot more ready and I'd been walking around and really trying to get things moving while I was on the drip, it was a very short turnaround from when I went from being two centimetres dilated to fully dilated and ready to Mm. push. And Mm -hmm. it was a bit of a rush to get my doctor back from over the road from his surgery to to come and supervise and, and control the birth and much easier to push this time around. I pushed once everyone just made these strange faces and noises so I knew something was happening down there and then I I made this joke to everyone because I'd watched a couple of nights before what to expect when you're expecting and <laughs> classic one of the one of the ladies on there the younger one I forget her name but she had twins and she literally sneezed out the second one and I I, I basically made that comment while I was pushing that <laughs> wouldn't it be funny if the baby just came right out and I I laughed and basically that just helped and <laughs> one more <laughs> tiny push and she was out so I was not only relieved but I was in this state of shock because yeah. she was out so quickly and I'd fully expected to be in in there waiting and waiting for another few hours and all of a sudden she was there. So again, a big relief once they're out, you just feel that sense of everything's going to be, I hope, okay. And I can see them and they're here. And yeah, it was just a really good feeling. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's amazing how quickly Ava joined us into the <laughs> <Yeah>. world. <laughs> and poor thing, her little face was a bit swollen for a few days. So when I look back Aww. at the photos, I go, oh gosh, yep, she she got pushed out very quickly, but she's she's good now. So very, very happy. Yeah, she is absolutely gorgeous. Well, that sounds like two great birth experiences. And whilst you, s- you say that you like to be in control, it does sound like you did have some form of control through the birth experience with regards to your obstetrician and the epidural and all of that kind of thing. So I think they're really positive experiences and definitely ones that I'm looking forward to sharing with the listeners. Yeah, I think it's good to share those positive induction stories because yeah. there's a lot of guilt around making that choice. And mm. I, I felt like there was guilt at the time. And now that I look back, I think 
I they came out safely. I did feel like I had a choice and mm-hmm. it was a positive experience. So I really think that people should hear about those positive experiences and balance the the negative feedback that they're getting via social media and, you know, prominent people because it it is a good choice and it works for a lot of people. So yeah, yeah, something that people should should know and, and feel comfortable with and not feel guilt at all. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so how were you when you first became a mum? Um, let's go back four years ago with Zara. Oh gosh. <laughs> it was the biggest learning curve of my life. And for someone that is always in control and and for me, I, I learn a lot through studying and practical experiences and and really getting a handle of things very quickly I just found it really difficult in those initial few months because Mm. I guess with any new parent you don't know what's going on you really don't have any preparation for bringing a little baby home and Mm -hmm. all of the research and the literature and the courses that you do are around the birthing process and there's just nothing that you learn about the weeks after it. So I think that needs to change. And I think people need to need to get that experience beforehand of just being prepared for the just lack of control and, and lack of, you know, knowing in a way that things are going to be okay and, and just being prepared for that. Yeah. Yeah. I remember even Matt and I, and I've heard this from so many people, when you get home after being at the hospital, you kind of sit down and you're in your own environment in your home and you have a baby and you kind of look at each other and you're like, what do we do now? (laughs) So it's, it's funny when that happens. And as you say, you don't have any control. And also just knowing what type of mother that you want to be, you you tend to Mm. go to a different extreme. So for me, the way would have been to have a schedule and to, to know what I was doing. But for me, what I'd experienced from other people's birthing processes and other people's motherhood and social media, I had this concept in my mind that I wanted to be a really on-demand, natural, go-with-the-flow type of mother. And so I went into Zara's first few weeks thinking, I'll just go with the flow and do what she wants me to do. And I was breastfeeding her, obviously, when you're first in that initial weeks of breastfeeding, you've really just got to do what the baby wants and learn to get used to their supply and demand requirements. And so it's just all over the place. But for me, that was really difficult. Mm -hmm. And I just found it didn't seem to get much easier in terms of her feeding schedule. She was always wanting to feed and her sleeping was all over the place. And I really mm-hmm. was trying to make sense of something that probably wasn't something that needed to be made sense of at the time. And when I joined my mother's group, which was in person mm-hmm. at that time, there was mm-hmm. no lockdowns, thank God. <laughs> it was a blessing because you could be around all these other mothers that were experiencing this journey of being a first-time mother so it was nice to know that you weren't alone but Mm. for me it created a little bit more anxiety at times because when I looked at all these other babies they were sleeping for longer than 20 minutes they were only feeding every few hours Mm. and I was like what's going on here like I, I just can't seem to get this right and I just remember 
all of the hours and hours at night spending watching TV shows on my phone, just sort of trying to pide the time away and, and rock her to sleep and try to get her to settle. And it was just difficult. But I guess now I look back and in hindsight, um, when you're in that moment, you just don't see a way out of it. And so when I was going to the appointments with the community nurses, they were asking me these questions about how I was feeling and my answers were, you know, I, I, you know, sometimes I feel happy, other times I just feel really overwhelmed and anxious and, and sad. And I think that probably put me in that category of being at risk of postnatal depression. And so they did ask mm-hmm. me to keep coming back and, and were really supportive and checked in on me um, more so than probably most people. But I certainly didn't get to the point where I did have any postnatal depression. But for me, it was just a really contrasting point of my life in terms of just knowing the way out and feeling like there's no light at the end of the tunnel at that point in time, because it was just really Mm -hmm. hard. But I guess now I look back and I know that that was very short lived. It was only three or four months and then it started to get easier week by week, but you can't see that at the time. So it just feels Mm. really challenging, but I think when I look back now, it was trying to do motherhood in a way that probably wasn't playing to my strengths. It was doing the demand feeding, just letting her sleep when she wanted to sleep and letting her really just go about her way. And what I Mm. learned with Ava is that there is a way that you can control those things a little bit more. You just have to get in early. You have to get those schedules and those routines in place. And if you're someone that likes to do that, then it's very, very much possible. Obviously, if, if you if you like going with the flow and you're a lot more relaxed and, and that's your thing, then go for it. But um, for my two different experiences, it was really useful to compare and contrast mm-hmm. the two ways. And for me, Ava's been a lot easier because I was able to get her into a routine with her feeding and her sleeping a lot quicker. Number one, because I'd done it before. Um, Number two, I got some extra help and she didn't put on her weight as much as she should have like Zara did. And I think number three, when you have another child, you don't have all of that spare time to be able to dedicate to a, a newborn baby. So you do have to learn to put them down let them settle themselves to sleep a lot quicker and even go to the toilet or have a shower, (laughs) which is not something I did with Zara. I many a time took her to the toilet with me. It was just a laugh at it now. Yeah, that that was the state that I was in that I I didn't even think I could put her down to go to the toilet. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it it does get hard, though. And particularly, as you say, those middle of the night feeds where you feel like you are the only one in the world that is awake at that time, you're the only one going through it. And the reality is there's many others that are going through it at the same time. So it's it's just nice to know that. But as you say, when you're in that moment and you're just feeling so lonely and so helpless and kind of beside yourself, it's hard to have that perspective. Absolutely. And when you're breastfeeding, you know that you've got your partner, if you have one, to support you, but it's not like you can expect them to sit there and, and be awake while you're feeding the baby. Like to me, that just seems pointless. Mm-hmm. So 
I did feel that the pressure was on me and it's really funny because I look back now and I I had to mix feed Ava right from early on because of her weight gain issues and now that she's seven months old she's Mm. fully weaned of breast milk and she's just on her bottles and her solids now and there was a lot of guilt around that for me because I had breastfed Zara exclusively until she was 11 or 12 months old and um I look back on both experiences and I can see that Mm -hmm. I had guilt and anxiety around Zara's situation because I felt like it was all the pressure was on me. And then with Ava, I had the guilt of not feeding, breastfeeding her enough and not getting through Mm -hmm. to the the 12 months. But, you know, both of those situations are fine and whatever the journey and the outcome is with breastfeeding, you know, as long as that baby is happy and satisfied and fed and gaining weight as they should be, then you shouldn't feel any sense of guilt around what the journey looks like. It's, you know, it's it's an outcome, it's a means to end and it's nutrition for the baby regardless. So, uh, yeah, I just think when you're in that moment of breastfeeding and it, it might become too hard, I think it's yeah. really good to know that, you know, there are other options and, formula feeding is absolutely fine. And even if you breastfeed for a few weeks or not at all, it doesn't matter in the end, as long as that baby is happy. I couldn't agree more. And it's difficult, isn't it? Because everyone kind of has in their head, oh, breast is best. And that's kind of what is embedded in you. But ultimately, as you said, it's about the baby. Because I know with Logan, I think I was just a bit stubborn. I, I think I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it and that, you know, I wanted what was best for him. But in hindsight, I don't know, I I might have started to wean him a bit earlier because I think it was better for getting him into more of a routine and he was getting full quicker when I put him completely on formula and his his sleep improved. So there's a lot of factors that go into it. And ultimately, I think it's such a personal decision of each family or each mum and the baby and, you know, whoever else is involved to decide what's what's best. So I think that's a really good point that you made around breastfeeding. So if we move on, was there anything else that you struggled with throughout your journey of motherhood with either of the girls? I think for me, it was just that sense of not having any time for yourself. And Mm. I know that that's very common for new mothers and and mothers generally, but it's, it's hard to know about that when you're planning to have a baby and you're going through that pregnancy and you just really want that baby to arrive. So I think just enjoying the experience of being pregnant and having that time to yourself and with your partner is is something that you should cherish and and really make the most of. But I guess when he arrives, it's mm. it's about carving just that little bit of time out for yourself. And with Zara, I just didn't do it. I didn't know how to do it. I really struggled with the routine, as I said, and trying to know when to to make that time for myself. So with Ava, I really made the the effort mm. to to make that time important, just as important as the time was for her. And so I would schedule in some Pilates sessions. I would Mm -hmm. make sure that I went for a walk when I wanted to. And once I got her sleep under control, 
I've learned to get out of the house and to make it work for me so that I felt like I had a sense of time and was able to be active and, and move around. Well, they say happy mum, happy baby. And obviously, as we've mentioned, your website, Gorgeous Presence, one of the pillars of that is, is wellness. So what, what else has helped you being the happiest mum that you can be? I think just focusing on the things that made you a person before you had a baby. So once you become a mother, it's not, you know, it's not your title in entirety. I really had placed an importance on my career. And during my career, I'd progressed really strongly up into a director role. So doing my work was a very important part of myself. So for me, once I became a mother, going Mm -hmm. back to work was really important. And also focusing on my exercise and my creative activities outside of work because accounting can be quite quite practical and technical and numbers driven so for me just um, taking the time to do things with my website and take photos and just exercise that creative part of my brain was really important and now that I've been back to work with Zara and then now I'm on maternity leave again with Ava, I'm very much focused on ways I can stay in touch with work, doing a few parts of work that fit in with my schedules with Ava in terms of being on committees and taking part in certain um, social and networking activities just to stay connected to people. And Mm. I find that that just complements my role as a mother and it really helps me to keep that other side of my brain running and and challenged and motivated so that when I do return to work next year, it will be, you know, hit the ground running and and keep going and learn the new task of juggling two kids with work. (laughs) (laughs) I had this uh, discussion with Matt recently around um, going back to work because initially I'd planned on taking 12 months but I feel like there's a there's a gap missing in my life with work and I know that some people will be listening to this and will totally disagree and that's fine because it's everyone's own personal opinions but I'm similar to you in the sense that my career is really important to me and it's something that I've worked really hard at so I've then decided to go back early. So I'm going back in November instead of January. Um, and I think that's definitely the right decision for me because I feel like when it comes to becoming a mom, as you said, it's you're not just a mom. You've got a cup full of so many different things and it's about filling your cup with things that make you happy. So how, how do you balance your career and your home life? Look, I'm not going to pretend that it's easy, but <laughs> I, I do think that We are very lucky to have lived through two years of lockdowns and how that's revolutionized working from home and made it so normal. I think that's done wonders for women, particularly working in professional services, to be able to make that transition back to work and working potentially part-time and full-time hours while still being the, the main caregiver for children. I think that's been amazing and for me it was really helpful because I could manage the daycare drop-offs and pickups a lot easier when I was working from home with childcare being local mm. and still be at my desk at nine o'clock and, and be there until close to five o'clock and, and not feel like I was the last mum picking up my child. Mm. So I think working from home is something that 
if if it's possible, it's something that is now the normal, but should really be something that all returning to work mothers should request as a normal and not feel guilty about it because Mm. we've got the technology now and all of our clients and the people that we work with are in the same boat and you know they they don't necessarily demand those in-person meetings and interactions that they used to so being really strong about your work from home and your working arrangements is something that I insist all returning to work mothers should take control of because if you don't ask for something, then people will just assume that Mm. you're happy with the way things are. And particularly when you're working with uh, other colleagues who may be male Mm. or older or just not used to a situation that you're in, you really need to make it your own and take control of your circumstances and and ask for what you need. And I think the other important thing is just being able to place boundaries around your work and home life and for me, that's really difficult because my job demands a lot of emotional investment into the things that are happening. And a lot of the times the situations don't arise inside of the work hours. They might be late at night demands and crisis situations that come up. And so it's about being then flexible with the rest of your day. So Mm. I know that if I'm working late at night, then something's going to have to give. I'm going to have to take a bit more time during the day to, you know, spend time with my family or catch up on, you know, the things that I've missed out on. So not necessarily allowing one part of your life to consume or take over the rest, but also just accepting that there'll be seasons and and times Mm. in in the work-life balance juggle that, you know, at one point you might not feel like you've got everything at home under control, but that's okay because, you know, your work's demanding something more from you at that point, but then hopefully the tide will change and you'll have more time for your home and family life at other points. So just, just being able to accept that, you know, things aren't perfect, but yeah, it's just making Mm. it work for you and, and really just knowing that if you ask for something and you're able to produce the results. You don't have to have your bum seated on a desk chair for many hours of the day. I think that mothers are the most efficient and productive workers that you can get. So for me, it's all about output and outcomes, not necessarily hours. Yeah, very well said. I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, and I think I think it's a really important point because you mentioned um, setting expectations and I think the disappointment or you know annoyance lies when those expectations aren't met so the disparity between the reality and those expectations and I think it's important as you said for women to actually take control of that and be in charge of setting those expectations and making sure it works for for them so I feel like you've given the listeners and certainly me lots of food for thought in terms of advice and ways to stay ahead of life as a new mom and also how to play to your strengths and and what works best for you. So if we can end the podcast episode on one final point, what's the best thing for you about being a mom? Look, it's it's the same thing that most people would say. It's that additional space in your heart that you never thought you had space for. It's it's mm-hmm. I, I can't even describe it in in proper words, but when when you have those little people to look after your world expands and your priorities just change and 
you just want to do everything and everything for them. It's just, it's just amazing to see them grow and your work and career life just take on a whole new meaning because you want to set a good example for them and you just want to be a better person. So that to me is one of the best things about being a mum that I am now a role model for these two little girls that, you know, I am their whole world. And I just really think that that's such an amazing position to be in. So it's, I, 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 I can't even, I can't even (laughs) describe it in words. It's just amazing. Yeah. And what an incredible role model they have in you, Amanda. Thank you so much for this episode. I think it's going to be really beneficial, certainly for those who are second time mums and those who have experienced loss and also those who are looking to balance their career and their home life. So thank you so much for all your insights and advice and your story. It's been lovely having you on. Thanks, Lauren. And thank you so much for allowing me to share my story. Thanks for listening to the new Mama podcast. Be sure to hit subscribe to hear future episodes or share with a friend. Otherwise, if you'd like to share your story, send me a DM via Instagram at new mama podcast. And remember, it's okay to not be okay. We're in this together and mama, you got this.